If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, then your face will surely show it. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. You are so good. First, give yourselves a round of applause. That was amazing. You are on your A game today. That should be like the ACT in the state of Kentucky, you know? At least for Louisville Cardinals players, uh, maybe. Um, oh, come on, relax. He's not nice. No. I need a favor from you. On the front end of the message this morning, I want to make a, a few statements, and at the end of each statement, I'm going to go like this. I need you to give me two claps. Can you do that for me? All right. Let's practice really quick. Ready? Here we go. Again. All right, here we go. When I get that job and I make that amount of money, then I will be happy. When we live in that house over on that piece of property, then we will be happy. When my spouse finally changes, then I will be happy. When I get married and start a family and have some babies, then I'll be happy. When my kids are the best on the team and tops in their class, then I will be happy. You know what the problem with happiness is? It only lasts two hand claps. <laughs> it just doesn't last. It's like, a, it's like a chasing after the wind. And yet as a culture, we just continue to run after it with this reckless kind of abandonment. We just go for it every day. We pursue it. We don't give much thought to uh, the pain involved with our decisions, some of the potential consequences. And we live by this motto, this belief that says this, God just wants me to be happy. He just wants me to be happy. One of my great joys when I served on staff a years ago was working with the legend L.D. Campbell. <laughs> and what I loved about L.D. is L.D. is the same just sitting around a room as he is when he's on this platform. And we were talking one day as a staff just burdened about all the married couples that have been coming to us recently with marital challenges. Some of them on the brinks of divorce that honestly didn't really have biblical grounds for splitting up. They would come in, they'd say things like, he leaves his toenail shavings on the bathtub. That's pretty gross, but it's not grounds for divorce. And then he'd kick in, yeah, and you nag, 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 and nag, and don't stop. And I remember LD saying, people, they look at me and they go, we're just not happy. And LD said, if I could just be honest, sometimes when they say that to me, I want to stand on the table and pound my fist and say, well, who is? <laughs> just not happy. Just not happy. God just wants me to be happy. And I got to love you enough this week in First Church to tell you that believing that is believing a lie. Nowhere in Scripture do we ever find the phrase that says, God just wants you to be happy. God doesn't want you to be happy. Welcome to First Church. We're glad you're here. Hope you'll come back <laughs> next weekend. <laughs> God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be obedient. And church, when we're obedient, we're going to discover something so much more than happiness. Yet many people, they're going to spend the bulk of their lives kind of spiritually hanging out in the shallow end of happiness. Floaties on, splashing around, drinking a sweet tea and going, this is nice. 
when I believe there's something in the core of our gut who says, I want to go there spiritually. I want to go to that deep end out there where there's something more, but I probably can't stand there and I probably won't be able to touch. There's nothing to hold on to. It's probably going to be pretty uncomfortable. And I think that's why I've loved this series we've been journeying through these last several weeks. Because as a church, we've decided to take the floaties off. And we've been venturing into some deep end kind of stuff. This thing called joy. And in doing so, we've been reminded that there's a huge difference between joy and happiness. We've learned this thing called happiness is something we have because of our circumstances. But that joy is something we possess that's in spite of our circumstances. Joyfully married? Yes. <laughs> Happily married? Sometimes. <laughs> Joyfully employed? Yeah. Happily employed? On good days? <laughs> joy is different. It's deep end kind of stuff. It's more than just an A on an exam. It's more than just the euphoria of a great first date. It's more than a pay raise or a promotion, and it runs deep and long. In the last several weeks, we've just been trying to better get our arms around this thing and understand it. And in doing so, we've been journeying through an awesome little tiny book that's kind of nestled back into the New Testament called Philippians. And it's this book of outrageous and contagious joy written by the Apostle Paul. Now, every week when we gather here, I pray and I hope that there are people in these seats who have never been in church until today. Gosh, I hope you're here. You're welcome here. I expect and hope there are people here who have never cracked open a Bible. And so I want to, on the front end, give you a few minutes to understand the author of this book, whose name was the Apostle Paul. A lot of Christians go, oh, yeah, Paul. But you might be sitting here going, who's that? Like Paul McCartney, Paul Newman, who, who is this guy? So let me give you some cliff notes real quick. Paul, at one time, was a leader in the persecuting and murder of Christians. Not a nice guy. But one day on the road to Damascus, his life, boom, man, it gets radically transformed. And from that moment on, he becomes probably one of the most devoted followers of Jesus to ever walk the earth. He's amazing what happens to him. And from that moment on, he's got one mission in life and one mission alone. And that is to go and to preach and teach the hope and the good news of Jesus to anyone with a pulse or who's breathing. That's all he wants to do. And what you need to know is he sits down to write this joy-filled book. He's writing it from prison in Rome. And the four years leading up to him authoring this book was one wackadoodle kind of ride. First of all, he starts out being jailed for two years in Caesarea on false charges. Not fair. He gets out and he thinks, okay, I'm going to get back on my mission here. And then pretty soon he's shipwrecked out in the Mediterranean. It's like an episode of Survivor. He's washed up on some deserted island. While he's there, it says he got bitten by a bunch of poisonous snakes. He's left for dead several times. And then he ends up back in Rome for another two years in jail where he's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. No privacy at all. The guy's got every reason to be bitter depressed, angry at God. So what's he do? He does what anyone would do in these circumstances. He writes a book on joy. <laughs> and he talks about it 14 different times in this little book. <clears throat> and we hear that and we go, what? 
guy had problems. And so will you and I. One thing I love about Jesus is that Jesus was a straight shooter. And he didn't hide this reality from us in Scripture. Look what Jesus says in John 16, 33. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. And he gets really clear. He says, listen, here's the deal. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I've overcome the world. Jesus says, listen, here's how it works. Because sin entered the world, creation is broken. It's all jacked up. It doesn't work the way it was supposed to. There's poison in the well. And so because of that, you're going to deal with tragedy and illness. You're going to navigate deaths that you just don't understand that will never make sense. Throw on top of that just people. Don't be offended, but many people can be uh, uh, irritating. They can be arrogant. They can be offensive and demanding. Throw on top of that just the pain of this life, some of that emotional, some of that physical. Oh, and don't forget the pressure, <laughs> the pressure that you put on yourself on the inside and also the pressure that's coming from the outside. He says, man, you're going to have people. You're going to deal with pain. You're going to deal with pressure. Oh, and then don't forget the problems. <laughs> Like Paul, we're going to face our share of problems on the journey. Some of those problems will be unexpected and unannounced. Some of them, honestly, will be completely undeserved. And so Jesus says, listen, it doesn't matter if you're CEO of the world, married to Miss World, flying around on your private jet to all your homes around the world, driving the best cars in the world. You're going to have problems. It doesn't matter if, if you're uh, far from God or if you're Billy Graham on steroids, you're going to have problems. And I think it'd be fair to say the problem with life is all the problems, right? <laughs> but our man Paul comes along here in Philippians from prison of all places. And he teaches us how we can navigate the problems of life with a no matter what kind of joy. And so today, if you're just joining us, we're moving towards the end of this very personal letter that Paul's been writing. He's been writing to his friends at the church at Philippi. Wonderful people he started the church with. And we're going to pick up in his letter in chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. And as he begins talking, we're going to see that right now he's, he's expressing this in, incredible sense of gratitude to these folks for their prayers, for their love, their encouragement they've been sending his way. Let's pick up in verse 10. Paul says... I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. See, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Wow. <laughs> Paul makes a couple pretty radical statements there. He says, I'm going to be content whatever the circumstances. When things are great and when they're horrific. And it seems as if he's adopted this kind of revolutionary position that basically says, I don't have any needs. <laughs> I don't have any. 
He has learned that whether he's starving, whether he's suffering, whether he's being imprisoned, if he's got Jesus, he's got everything he needs. He's like, if Christ is all, then I have it all. A lot of times when we go to a wedding, we'll see that precious bride and groom up there facing one another, looking in each other's eyes. And they'll say things to one another like this. They'll say, for richer or for better or in sickness and and those are lovely sentiments that should be incorporated into the vows because it's a chance to say to your spouse, I'm in this with you for the long haul. I'm in this for the long haul regardless of what comes our way. But if we all get honest, if you've stood on that altar before, wasn't there part of you in the back of your mind thinking, better probably means awesome, <laughs> right? And worse can't be that bad. I mean, come on. We may not end up being super rich someday, we may not have perfect health, but few of us really at that moment think that the worst will ever happen to us. So we kind of put all our chips in the better, <laughs> and any thoughts of the worst we kind of put over on the shelf. Because extreme circumstances are just that, they're extreme. They're pretty rare, and they probably won't happen to us, right? <laughs> well, let's be clear. That is not Paul's story. We've been learning in this book that his life was one massive roller coaster ride of ridiculous highs and extreme lows. And so it's really important this weekend to remember as we hear his words, this guy's not blowing smoke. <laughs> we've seen the last several weeks, we've watched him go through it all, and we've watched God sustain him through it all. So when he says that you can have joy and that you can be content regardless of your circumstances, God knows what he's talking about. That's a check that you can cash. <laughs> so for just a few minutes this weekend, I want to invite you to come with me and let's, let's just grab on to some incredible truths that we learned from Paul and how we can actually pursue and maintain this life of joy. Here's the kicker. Regardless of our circumstances. First thing we learned from Paul is this, that is it's not about what you're facing where you're looking man get that this weekend it is not about what you're facing it's about where you're looking I'm gonna ask for a few volunteers down here in the front don't be worried don't get scared <laughs> this crew right here how you doing what's your name Shay. Shay nice to meet you what's your name Hi. how are you nice to meet you love that top makes your eyes dance gorgeous sorry how are you <laughs> Love the haircut, man. It looks good. Would you guys stand? I'm just going to get a quick photo of you guys really quick here. Try not to be so excited. You guys got to come together a little bit. Oh, man, you guys look great. All right, on the count of three, I want to hear Philippians, all right? One, two, three. All right, let me show you this. Make sure you approve. Look all right? Got everybody? All right, give them a hand. That was wonderful. I feel like I'm at Olin Mills. Now, I want to ask you all a question. When you first looked at that photo, who was the first person you looked at? Yourself. Don't feel bad about saying that. I do the same thing. I think we all do, right? I know at least for me, when somebody takes a picture of me in a group, the first thing I do when I look at that picture is I look at myself because I'm going to judge that picture based on how good I look in the picture. <laughs> Why are you laughing so hard? <laughs> The dude's an idiot, right? No, but I do. 
And so I'm thinking about, I hear my wife's voice. She always says, your, eye, your, your eyes are always look closed. Like, you don't have a big eye opening. I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't, I can't walk around like this, right? So I'm checking my eyes. <laughs> Do I look like this? Or if everybody's looking this way, am I the guy because there's another person over here? Don't you get confused when there's like four people taking a picture? You're like, where am I looking? I don't, over here, over here, I don't. So everybody else is looking here, and I'm the guy going. <laughs> or I'm trying to hold my neck at that position that all that back at you skin isn't <laughs> hanging down there. Oh, seven more chins just emerged. Where did those come from? Paula Dean recipes, like what happened there? But I judge the picture based on how good I look in the picture. <laughs> and don't we do the same thing with the circumstances we're facing? I know at least for me, when I'm going through a tough circumstance, I am staring at two things. I'm looking, first of all, at the circumstance, and I'm looking at me. I'm looking at the specific pain and mess that accompanies that circumstance, and I'm looking at what it's going to do to me. And that's pretty much all I can see. Paul comes along here and says, could I throw out another approach? What if you looked at it from God's bigger perspective? What if God had a much bigger picture and we looked at our problems from his viewpoint? Because he sees and knows the big picture when we tend to zoom in only a part of the picture. Sometimes when I'm driving to Cincinnati, I'll get to the cut in the hill and I get frustrated. I just want to get into Ohio and traffic is just at a standstill. We're sitting there for 15, 20 minutes, and I start yelling out things in my car. Nobody can hear it, so I don't know what the point is, but I'll go, Ohio drivers, can't drive. And then I'm like, you're so stupid. These are people from Kentucky trying to get to Ohio. It's not fair. But I'm like, what's the deal? I got a limited view. Well, later on at lunch, I got News 5 on, and it just so happens that the News 5 chopper was about 10 exits ahead with this bird's eye view of a horrible accident. And now I feel terrible. People could have died and I'm sitting here complaining that it's holding me up. See, I didn't have the whole picture. We tend to look at our situation and we judge our current picture based on how things look for us from where we currently are. And we often miss God's much bigger picture. See, the truth is, no matter what's going on in your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, God can do something with it. God has this uncanny ability to take our mistakes, our sins, our faults. He can even take tragedy and horrific things people have done to us and somehow work it all into his plan. He's like a great cook in the kitchen. You know, like when you're making an incredible dessert, people are coming over and you got all the ingredients spread out on the counter. You got flour and salt. You got raw eggs and baking soda, all that stuff. What if you reached down and just ate one of those ingredients by itself? <laughs> well, right? Nasty. Nasty. But somehow you put it together and bam, you get something so good. Num num, right? And God can do the very same thing in your life. He can. If you're looking for it. You got to be looking for it. You see, it's not about what you're facing. It's about where you're looking. And Paul knew this. Back in Philippians 1.12, look what he says. He says, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me has helped spread the good news. 
See, ever since Paul was converted, he had one big dream. And his dream was to go one day to Rome and to preach at the epicenter of the universe. Guess where everything was happening? This place was loaded with opportunity and people of influence. And I got to think he had dreams about, man, I'm going to go and I'm going to rent out the Colosseum and we're going to have months of crusades. It's going to be just crazy, man. The most strategic city in the world. It'd be like Billy Graham when he was alive being in New York City and just renting out Madison Square Gardens for months of crusades, night after night after night. That was his dream. I'm going to go preach in Rome. And God says, um, actually, I'm going to send you to Rome as a prisoner. <laughs> Talk about a detour, man. And yet just like Abraham, who was there ready to sacrifice his son, even though he'd never seen a resurrection, and just like Noah, who kept hammering away at the ark day after day after day, even though it had never rained, Paul trusted that God was going to bring good from it. And so he moved forward in joy. Because it wasn't about what he was facing. It's about where he was looking. And so as it seems that Paul has moved from preacher to prisoner, we learn a great second truth from him and how we can maintain and pursue this life of joy regardless of our circumstances, and it's this. And that is that God can use your chains for change. Man, get that this weekend. Paul is now a prisoner of Nero, if you know much about Nero, Nero was one bad, wicked dude. <laughs> Paul is a royal prisoner chained to a royal guard 24 hours a day. But because of that, he gets to talk to people he would have never had a chance to talk to. He ends up talking to the entire court of Caesar's palace. Chained 24 hours a day. We know that the guards changed every four hours, which means in a little over two years' time, he witnessed to about 4,380 guards. <laughs> Wow. God's sitting back going, that's my plan. <laughs> Buddy, listen to me. Paul, I know you want to do the big city lights national crusade and pack out the Colosseum for months at a time, but I'm going to put you in prison. And I'm so glad he did. Because <laughs> there's two huge things that came from it. Number one, we learned that some of Nero's family became believers. Some of the royal family became followers of Jesus Christ. But I think the bigger thing is this. Paul, probably like us, was a man on mission. It was hard to get him to slow down. He's on the move. He doesn't like to sit still. And spending all this time in jail, it kind of forced him to slow down and to be still. And as a result, he basically writes the New Testament. <laughs> and I go, hmm, I wonder which had the bigger impact. National Billy Graham type crusades, big city lights, or being forced to sit still hour after hour after hour and write Romans, Philippians, Colossians and Galatians, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and on and on and on. Basically, the New Testament. See, Paul had this joy so much more than happiness or emotion. It was in spite of his circumstances. It was never about what he was facing. It was all about where he was looking. And so God is able to use his chains for change. And I want to ask you this weekend to just start thinking about this question. 
You ever wonder how God might use your chains to bring about change in the lives of other people? When my wife and I first got married, I'll just be honest, I didn't want to have kids. It's not that I hated them, I had just met some. And, uh, <laughs> I started out in ministry as a youth pastor, and that is the best form of birth control in the world. But one night, a family invited us to their home for dinner, which was really nice, and they sit my wife and I there at their table, and they put their one-year-old right between us in his high chair with his little tray. Grossest experience of my life. They put on his tray squash and yams. No utensils. And so this kid's sitting here between us, squeezing it like Play-Doh, stuff shooting out everywhere. He's talking to it. Creatively hiding it in his ears. I'm sitting there trying to enjoy my steak. This kid's got fluid shooting out all over him, blowing yam bubbles, you know. And then the parents have the audacity to give him jello, right? I mean, as adults, we can't even eat jello with good manners, right? So now he's got the jello hair gel going on. And then he begins to take his game up a notch. He starts kind of reaching out towards me. He's talking to me. And my wife understands exactly what he's saying. She's like a baby whisper. He's in this. He's coming for me. And so in that moment, I shot him the look. You know the look? It's the look you give your dog or your kids when they're being bad and that you mean business. And then you're more frustrated because they don't get the look. <laughs> we have a yellow lab named Sam at home. He's like 13. When I give him the look, this is what he does. I love you. <laughs> and I'm more frustrated. But I shot him the look. It was a look that basically said, you touch me, I'm burning your crib down. Like, knock it off. Well, we got in the car, we're heading home. My wife's got wipes. She's like wiping stains off her clothes. And she's like, wasn't that a great time? Oh, yeah, absolutely, sweetheart. What a blast. And as I'm driving, I remember I yell out, I'm never having children. And she just laughed, <laughs> which made me more mad on the inside. Fast forward about eight years with me. There we are in Owensboro, Kentucky, in the newborn delivery section. The nurse walks over with our newborn son, and she goes, do you want to hold him? And I go, no thanks, he looks slippery. Because <laughs> if, if you've ever seen a baby, it looks like a Vaseline-covered weasel. It's the, it's the best description I can think of. <laughs> But as I'm sitting there, holding E.T. in my arms, <laughs> I'll never forget this moment. I'll never forget it. Casey's little hand wrapped around my pinky. And in that moment, it's as if God reached down the depths of my soul and he said, Chad, buddy, do you feel that? Do you feel that? That love that you feel right now for him Multiply that by like infinity, and that's the love I have for you as your father. Mm. However, the road leading up to that destination was a rough one for my wife and I. For eight years, we did everything we could to get pregnant. This wasn't in the cards for us. 
Some of you know the roller coaster ride of infertility treatments. It's emotionally and financially expensive. We're mad because we have friends that seems like they could just bump at each other in the hallway and get pregnant. Like, how are they, how are they doing that? Like, is there a documentary on this? I, I don't get it. I know we shouldn't judge people, but we have friends having babies that we're like, they shouldn't be having kids. Like, it's not going to work out real well. We had a couple failed adoptions. One was a little girl over in Ohio. We'd been through everything with the family. We'd had a shower. We had a nursery. We'd picked out the name. And a week before she was born, the mother sends an email and says, we're not doing this. Kick to the gut. Once we had a birth family in Owensboro, we made 14 round trips there just for doctor's appointments with the birth mother, seven hours each time, all in one day. When we went to the hospital, uh, we had to stay there three days after he was born. And so you're waiting going, is she going to change her mind? We couldn't have any family there when he was born to celebrate because, and we got it, that was insensitive to the birth family for us to be having some big celebration with his hard for them. When we got home, it was nine months before it was finalized in the courts here. And at that point, up until that point, the parents could have changed their mind any day. And so you're disciplining yourself to be kind of a caregiver, but not a parent yet. And just to be transparent, my wife and I, we ran the gamut emotionally during that season. We were angry. We were mad at God. I didn't want to make some stupid snow day video. We were depressed. We, we were just a mess. Until finally one day, we looked at each other and we said, enough. This is stupid. Enough. And we took a cue from Paul and we started asking some more important questions. God, what are you doing here? God, is there something you're wanting to teach us? Are you wanting to build our faith muscle in some way? Do you maybe want to use this to help us minister to and care for other people? And I got to tell you, ever since then, we have had numerous opportunities to come alongside other couples who are so weighed down by very similar chains. It's been awesome. Paul lived out what happens when we face tough stuff with that kind of joy, joy that runs deep and long. Look back at Philippians 1, 13 through 14. Paul says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That's cool. Because <laughs> it tells us that there's two very powerful things that happen when our life is rooted in a joy in every circumstance. Verse 13 says, when we do that, it's a witness to unbelievers who are watching. And they're watching how we navigate that stuff. Verse 14 says, oh, and by the way, it's also a great encouragement to believers. Would you take a moment and just bow your heads with me? I want to ask you in the next few moments, would you just be fully here? Don't we worry about where we're going to have lunch yet? Back to school shopping later today. Stuff you got to get ready for the week. Just be fully here for a moment. I want you right now to honestly answer this question before God. What are you chained to right now in your life? Maybe you're chained to something in a relationship or in your marriage. Maybe you feel just chained to an addiction. 
Maybe you're chained to a parenting challenge that you just, you're like, I don't know what else to do. Maybe you're chained to trying to move past a, a loss or a tragedy that can't even be put into words. Maybe you're chained to some type of depression. But what if? What if God wants to use your chains to change the lives of other people? Lastly, we see just incredible truth that emerges from Paul's life and how we maintain and pursue this life of joy regardless of our circumstances, and it's this. That is, that joy is relational, not circumstantial. If you get nothing else this weekend, please get this. Do whatever you gotta do to remember it. Put it on an index card, on the mirror, shave it on the side of your dog, tattoo, whatever you gotta do, but don't miss this. Paul in Philippians comes along, he says, I'm gonna let you know a little secret. This is what he says in verse 12. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul says, psst, come here. I got a secret for you. It's Jesus. <laughs> it's Jesus. His secret was his personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus. The one who in John 10, 10 said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. <laughs> That's a full life. That's a life of joy. And it's totally based on an internal relationship with Jesus, not external circumstances. Church, hear me this weekend. Religion will not give you joy. Attending church will not produce joy. Listening to Christian radio and pointing the way to the one will not give you joy. Serving and attending ministry programs and events, which are all really important, they'll not give you joy. Joy is only found in a daily, personal, and growing relationship with the person of Jesus. Jesus. And I gotta tell you, until you have him, you'll never know joy. You never will. A few years ago, Gatorade had their big marketing slogan. You'd see the commercial, and the athlete comes off the field, and sweat pouring all over their body, and they're all depleted, and they hold up that big red bottle, and they start guzzling. And then they ask this question, is it in you? <laughs> is it in you? That's the question I'm asking you right now. Is he in you? Have you asked Jesus Christ to come and live in your life. Jesus. The Bible calls him Emmanuel, which means God with us, which means God with you in all things. <laughs> wow. As we close, go back to that hospital room with me just for a moment in Owensboro. It's the second full day. We hadn't been with Casey much at all. We were trying to let the birth mother and her family have closure with him. We snuck my parents in for about 20 minutes into our room to see him while he was in the bassinet before we had to send him back. And I'll never forget, they were getting ready to head back home here to northern Kentucky. And I'll never forget standing over his bassinet as they're getting ready to leave. And I just lost it. I remember standing over Casey saying, 
I just want to be your dad. I just want to be your dad. I've never wanted anything more. And I'd sing this song over him. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Right now, you need to know you have a father who sings over you. And he's saying to you right now, I just want to be your dad. I have never wanted anything more. And today, in this moment, he can give you that unexplainable joy that will anchor your life no matter what comes your way if you're ready to believe and to receive. It takes action. It's a choice. A father who sings over you. This is how the Bible describes him in Zephaniah 3.17. It says, the Lord your God is with you. Mighty to save. He takes great delight in you and he will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. Let that sink in. A father who sings over you. You have circumstances that harden you. But you have a father who sings over you. You have a job that just drains you. But you have a father who sings over you. You have a tragedy that has just paralyzed you. But you have a father who sings over you. You have a relationship that just scars you. But you have a father who sings over you. Maybe you sit here and you have a past that just continually haunts you. But you have a father who sings over you. Man, I can rejoice in that, can't you?